0: Exciting news at This Week Health, starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health Conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health Conference and stay updated every Thursday.
1: Today on This Week Health. It's a new frontier, I would say. Genomic data informing patient care activities. We know so little about the human genome as it pertains to patient care. That's going to be an evolution. And those that can foster the collaboration between the two, I think are going to be winners downstream.
0: Thanks for joining us on this keynote episode, a This Week Health conference show. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health a set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. For five years, we've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. Special thanks to our keynote show partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now onto our show. I wanna welcome everybody. This is gonna be our leadership series, second into our leadership series CIO discussion. And we're going to talk specifically with three academic medical center leaders about priorities for 2023. If you've attended any of our webinars, we're going to start promptly at about 1:03, 1:04, four minutes past the hour. We'll give people a chance to come in. Looks like 50 some odd people have joined already, so it's it and it's going up. So, but one of the things I'm going to do prior to that, just to fill the time here, real quick. I'm going to ask each one of our panelists an opening question get an idea of have them share a little bit about who they are last year's question was first computer if you want to answer that you feel free to but this year's question is what was your first job out of college so we will you know what michael since you were the first one to join promptly at the time i will i'll have you start so first job
1: so Bill, thanks for having me participate. Much appreciated. Great to be here with Neil, as well as Craig. So my first job out of Ryder college, which is now Ryder university in 1981 was as a COBOL programmer. So my skills are still pretty relevant in some industries, but working for a company known as Sperry Univac that is oh, yeah. now a part of Unisys and my first role was pretty cool. I got to work in Cape Canaveral, Florida on the space shuttle, and we were developing a supply chain system for the solid space boosters, rocket boosters that tracked each and every part on the space shuttle. So when it flew and came down those parts, some could be renovated, some could be reused, some could be thrown away and replaced, <laughs> but fascinating two and a half years.
0: Wow. Hey. I- I- Maybe I shouldn't ask this question. I was going to ask if any of your institutions had still had COBOL anywhere in the institutions. Oh man, Neil, you're shaking your head. Yes. Well, that's good. You can call on Michael. He'll get on a plane, come down there, do a little coaching. Neil, you want to go go next? So, Neil, I'm going to introduce each of you and your health system in a minute. Neil, first job out of uh, first job out of college.
2: Well, it's kind of tough to say first job out of college because I went straight into medical school then residency, but. Before starting medical school in the summer before that, and right after I graduated from college, I was a telemarketer who would cold call businesses and try to sell them toner. And back then, before computers, we just had stacks of yellow pages and we would just find businesses and then call them and then kind of basically assume we would tell them we had a computer and we're looking things up and get them to divulge the type of copier they had and the model number. And then we would say, oh yeah, you use this kind of toner. Would you like some? (laughs) I lasted for two weeks and that was purely due to persistence that I had to make one sale before I would quit.
0: Wow. And I would imagine that makes you a little bit more empathetic to salespeople over the years, having done that. Craig, how about you?
3: So out of school, I was studying to be a pharmacist. So my first gig was as a hospital pharmacist. I moonlit at a retail chain drugstore. But I had, my first high school or real job, as it were, was I worked at Subway. I was making Subway sandwiches uh, as my my first gig. And there was a strange time period, actually, where I had worked at Subway and then I got a job at the pharmacy. So people would come to the Subway and they'd see me behind the counter <laughs> there. And then they'd come to the pharmacy where I was a pharmacy tech. And I began to appreciate that it might be unsettling to, to see me in both places. So I gifted to pharmacy. Yeah, I guess, I guess it would be unsettling. That's interesting.
0: All right. Hey, we're ready to get going. So I want to thank our listeners for being a part of this. Uh, and I, and again, I want to thank our panelists and I will introduce them in a second, in a little bit more detail. I, I would encourage you go ahead and ask questions. You can ask them in the Q and A and the chat as well. We will pick those up and take a look at them. This in your registration, there was a line there to put in any questions you might have. We received more questions for this panel than we've ever had before. I think we have easily over 60 to, 60 to 70 questions. We'll see where, where it goes. As far as introductions, we have Neil Patel, Dr. Neil Patel, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and Craig Kwiatkowski, the newly minted
3: CIO for Cedar Sinai. Are you a year in yet, Craig? Uh, yeah, I'm close to a year formally and informally. I'm getting close to two years or as the interim. Wow. And then uh, Michael Rustusia, Penn Medicine, out of Philadelphia,
0: Pennsylvania, home of the Super Bowl bound. Philadelphia Eagles. We will skip that conversation because we already had it. Let's just jump right into it. So I, I did a previous poll on LinkedIn and I asked just the LinkedIn community, what will drive healthcare provider priorities in 2023? I gave four options, financial pressure, disruption, and new entrants, patient experience, or worker shortage or worker experience. The financial pressure won that pull by a pretty sizable margin. Number two was worker shortages and the other two were laggards essentially. I'm curious, let's start, we're going to start by talking about the macro trends and then we'll get into some of the specific priorities. What do you find is driving the priorities for 2023? Michael, we'll start with you. What's driving the priorities?
1: Yeah, I think within the healthcare industry, we're all familiar with more than half of our colleagues throughout the country are going to run at a deficit in the upcoming year. And those pressures, financial pressures, are driven by, as we all know, many things, right? The COVID cost of care escalating rapidly, revenues from payers not escalating at the same rate, turnover within particularly the clinical ranks, patients afraid to come back, to the hospitals, surgeries generally on a downtrend. So, you know, what's driving everything is the financial pressure, pressure and the immediacy of that financial pressure. It wasn't like there was six years to plan for this. People walk, walked out in droves in a short period of time. Rates increased significantly, and the reimbursements in revenues to us will not come back as rapidly. So a lot of pressure on cost containment, expense management and trying to do more with less.
0: Yeah. Neil, I guess, I guess we'll come to you. I I assume you're going to echo some of those thoughts. Anything you would add to that?
2: I guess the thing I would add, no doubt the financial pressures and Michael's absolutely right. Supply costs. We all know that from real life and nursing shortage, but the immediacy that we're feeling in that space is our volumes are through the roof. We're sleeping 70 to 90 patients in our ED because there's no room upstairs. We have three to six month waiting lists in our clinic. As we're trying to keep every bed open in this community, when a ripple happens somewhere else, I mean, we're in Nashville, we're four-hour drive from Atlanta. And when the Atlanta hospital closed, we started getting increased referrals. And that was unheard of pre-COVID. And so I think we're getting requests for behavioral health patients to be in an inpa- our inpatient area from all contiguous states. So the pressures that we're feeling in terms of needing to provide more and more care, coupled with what we just talked about with financial pressures and worker shortages, and is really creating the perfect storm where the especially the AMCs are just in the crosshairs.
0: That's interesting. It's interesting that Four hours away, Atlanta, but it's also interesting. It's a different state, and it's still there's still ripple effects. Are you, I guess uh, Craig, we'll come to you. Are you? I mean, you're in LA, traditionally a lot of competition, a bunch of academic medical centers, and are you seeing that same some of those same kinds of things?
3: Yeah, I don't have much to add. I think Michael and Neil summarized it well. It's financial pressures, it's escalating cost of care. Patients, I think, as Neil was alluding to are sicker, deferred care, the length of stay is longer than it's ever been for us, and we have significant capacity and access issues. And some of those, we hear a lot about nursing shortage, which is absolutely true, but it's also just folks to answer the phone, to make appointments, medical assistants, navigators. All of those things impact our ability to have broader and more real-time access, as was described. I, don't, I think Neil said it. We have wait times in primary care in some cases it's months and for some specialties a little less so but these pressures are all real and they're particularly acute on the financial side in our case
0: let's talk about technology so we'll try to focus in on the intersection of technology and healthcare we got some questions here that are clearly medical questions we're going to steer clear of those but the intersection of technology and healthcare are, so we have worker shortages we used to say nurse shortages, but it's, it really is across the board. It's, I mean, it could be in the, uh, in the cafeteria. I mean, you just have shortages, just, just hard to hire people. We're hearing that throughout. How, what kind of conversations are we looking at in terms of technology leaders to alleviate that, to create more hours, to create more capacity? I mean, what kind of conversations are we, are we looking at, are we having? Neil, I guess I'll start with you.
2: What we're having is technology will fix everything, right? And that's what, the, that's what come in SINs as the 10 new requests every morning to your local IT shop. But seriously, there's two aspects to that. Number one, can we automate mundane or redundant tasks so we don't need the human in that space anymore or any longer so that the staff we have can do as much as possible and do the work that they have to do that technology can't cover? The other part is when we have these shortages, the burnout rate of the existing people increases because they're working short-staffed all the time and under pressure. So how can we leverage technology to help support and reduce the anxiety of folks that are probably very not as experienced, don't have the safety net of folks around them to help them do their job well? And you're right, it's all the way up and down the line lab tech shortages, respiratory tech shortages, CT scan tech shortages, surgical tech shortages, and the ORs. Any one of those individuals is part of the care team. And if that link in the chain is not as robust, the whole system becomes slow and frustrating. So we're being looked upon. Obviously we can't fix skill issues that you need a human at the bedside for, but what are the technologies we can deploy change the model of care. That's something that has been the mantra since the end of the last year, where we're re-looking at how to deploy virtual support, not for care at home, but just even within the hospital, uh, so that the bedside providers get some support instead of just running around chasing things down.
0: So you just gave us three topics that came up in the questions, and I'm going to use them as a framework right now. Automation, support our existing workers and reduce the stress and the burden on them. And then the third being care at home. We talked about capacity issues and those kinds of things. I want, I want to start with, I want to start with automation and get kind of pragmatic with the three of you, Craig, I'll start with you. As we talk about automation, what areas are ripe for automation? Like you just look at it and go, this is absolutely right. We're going after this. What areas are maybe in the exploratory phase where you look at it and go, yeah, we know there's potential there. We just haven't found the right technology or whatnot. Uh, So what are you looking at in terms of automation at this point?
3: I think the area that's ripe certainly for us and probably more broadly is in the revenue cycle space. We've identified some nice opportunities to maximize our existing tools within the EMR, automate more, and I think achieve some real measurable savings and efficiency. Um, things that may sound simple, but you know, making sure we're using paperless statements, we're not have a manual process for that. Reducing non-clinically triggered charges, automating consecutive accounts, dabbling and pushing as far as we can with prior authorization—the holy grail of I think automation or more efficiency within the revenue cycle space. I think where the dabbling, or I forget how you framed it, Bill, but you know, not sure category is more so on the clinical side. There's tools and AI-like algorithms that we're testing, deploying, and using, but those, I don't know, will ever be fully automated, or at least not in the near term. They still require a human to second check, whereas some of the things in the revenue cycle, billing, and coding space tend to allow for a bit more autonomy. Yeah,
0: and Michael, I'll come to you with the same question around automation. What are you seeing or what are you being asked about?
1: So I think some of the mundane tasks that Neil and Craig mentioned are ripe for opportunity. Certainly pre-authorization is one of those items that somewhat leverage a tool. And I find it interesting they call it artificial intelligence because back in the day, we just called it screen scraping. And <laughs> in my second job at Shared Medical Systems, we had a thing called AliScript. And we used to re-register patients all the time, just with a file and re-register. And suddenly now that's artificial intelligence. So I find it remarkable what some of the consulting firms and vendors (laughs) repackage as innovative. But that aside, all the things that Craig mentioned, certainly agree with the area that I am most frustrated, where there's great opportunity for automation is online patient scheduling. And it's not that we don't have the technology it's we don't have the operational engagement in order to open up those slots. In some instances, we don't have enough clinicians to even have slots. But that is an area to me that if we look at other industries, airlines, rails, hotels, you know, who who wants to speak to an agent? You want to do it yourself. You want to pick. And I realize some particularly specialties and subspecialties, it's kind of difficult because of the prerequisites. But we do a lot of primary care visits, also as does Vanderbilt and Cedar Sinai, and I think that's the biggest missed opportunity, and it will address a lot of that issue around access that everyone's mentioned here.
0: Yeah, Reg schedule is pretty interesting to me because my guess is if we if we were to look at the number of people that are associated with registration and scheduling in your institutions, that's a significant number of people, you guys are the front lines. I had a traditional idea and I didn't have an academic medical center, but I just know the stuff we were able to schedule was not the specialties and you guys right. are just loaded with specialists and they're fairly reluctant to open up their schedules for obvious reasons and whatnot. But that has to represent a significant opportunity in terms of just just manpower and labor that could be saved, I would think.
1: It's also an area of significant turnover. So it's a good point of entry and then rapidly move to the next role, either internally or externally. Sorry, Neil, I think I cut you off.
2: No, I think you're absolutely correct. And we we have recruited an incredible leader of our access center, a physician who just loves scheduling. And it take, has taken her as a physician to go talk to physicians and we're embarking in our increasing online scheduling and improved template design to really be robust so that basically you have one call completion, if there is a call, but robust enough that we can have much, as much self-service as possible. And the technology is there, it's the rules and the algorithms, and you have a lot of religion, especially in academic medical centers, because you know the right toe specialist does not want to see any patients that have a left toe issue, um, and so. The, that, that sort of problems has to be dealt with. And that's not a technology or a CIO job that requires really us supporting the operational people to be timely and responsive when they get hard work done and work through all those people.
0: The first group of CIOs were from IDNs and a question came in terms of ROI for projects. And I'm curious if we're going to coalesce around the same thing. What... When you are presented with a new project right now, what timeline are you looking for on an ROI? Just real quick answer on that. Michael, we'll start with you.
1: I think in the past, we were a little bit more patient. We're looking for more immediacy in ROI at this point. That could be up to six months, 12 months. But we're looking shorter term right now because of all the financial pressures we had indicated before.
3: Yeah, uh, Craig, similar for you guys or? Yeah, similar, I'd say probably one to two years. I don't know that we've ever really developed amazing discipline around ROI and cost value assessments and for better or for worse, maybe in the category of not wasting a good crisis. This is really forcing those conversations and causing us to be a little bit more deliberate about it, more real and making sure that this is a thing. And it's certainly a factor that we're considering as we considering with more intentionality, perhaps, than we have historically. And Neil, one one year, two years? Actually, it's kind of interesting.
2: Just like Craig said, the discipline on ROI is difficult to do, and you can always play to the game, per se. So we're really focused on the total cost of ownership, because that's a discipline that we don't do. Everybody comes with their project and whatever cost the vendor told them, but not the true cost of what it takes to implement and maintain And so over the past four years, we've really worked hard that every project, every new contract, we really need to know the three-year cost of ownership and what its impact is going to be in terms of capital dollars, as well as ongoing OPEX. Then the choices can be made. And once the choice is made, the leaders who make those choices have to decide whether it's worth it to do or not. And so I worry much less from an IT point of view of the ROI.
0: And it's interesting because that's the, that's the alley that you end up with. The trap that you end up with is you you buy something new, the costs go up. And then next year they come to you and say, Hey, we need you to reduce your IT spend by 5%. And you're sitting there going, but my IT spend just went up by 10% with just the stuff we bought. So how am I supposed to cut 5%? I mean, it's now you're talking 15% essentially is what you're, anyway, it just, it gets to be a little bit of a trap. We, I'm going to get to the user questions. because. They're quite interesting. A biggest biggest challenge facing, and I'm not gonna ask all of you to answer this. I'll probably just bounce around and have you guys maybe take each take one of them. And if you wanna comment on somebody else's answer, by all means, jump in. Biggest challenge facing academic medical centers from an IT perspective. So focusing in on academic medical center, the things that are distinct, biggest tech, what do they say? IT challenge from an IT perspective, biggest challenges facing. Craig, we'll go to you on that one. What's the biggest challenge facing an academic medical center today?
3: I think it's uh, thematically the demand for IT services exceeds supply. I think that's maybe a broad macro sort of thing. So it speaks to a little bit of what we've talked about already in terms of prioritization and ROI and such. Digital and consumer expectations have never been higher. I think that's certainly a priority for us and costs are outpacing reimbursement which is applying the pressures we've talked about earlier i think the thing people that may not understand
0: about amcs is projects can initiate from just about anywhere right. i mean they just hey i got a grant hey we've got this extra money over here hey we've got this It just that might seem like a good problem to have but it's also a challenge from a governance standpoint uh, michael is it am i saying that right
1: I think you are. It also represents, though, one of the most exciting opportunities when you can marry that research and that patient care in the form of personalized care, precision medicine, whatever you want to call it. That intersection is pretty exciting. We're at the forefront of it. It's a new frontier, I would say. Genomic data informing patient care activities. I don't know there's much smarter people on this call than me, but we know so little about the human genome as it pertains to patient care. That's going to be an evolution. And those that can foster the collaboration between the two, I think are going to be winners downstream. That that really is going to be a differentiator because the standard, the standard of care today is 100 times better than it was 20 years ago. What's the next differentiator? It needs to be this intersection between research and patient care. Is, Neil, I'll come to you. Is there
0: a digital transformation of clinical research? Is clinical research transforming
2: as, as, as well as we speak? Absolutely, on a variety of ways. I'll kind of lead into it with the first question because research is a space in terms of technical challenges. At academic medical centers, You know, when you have a research grant, you have a free pass. To do whatever you wish because in a sense it's your own little budget and your it is just supposed to support it and what that resulted in is a bunch of things that are orphaned sitting in under people's desks that never really got have any sort of central coordination because every place has this app or this machine etc so that technical debt just builds and now the financial pressure leads to maybe the support personnel that were local not being there anymore. And then all of a sudden, you just are being asked to adopt a lot of kittens. And with that, there's also the movement of how can we do clinical research at scale? And so everybody wants access to data. They want access to data immediately, but they don't have the local expertise in their shop to actually help them get to the data. So from a technical side, not only do we have to create the right aggregation and warehouses for data so that people have the underlying infrastructure but then also the intermediaries who can serve as the experts whether it's analysts or statisticians or others who can help them manipulate it yep. that then goes into clinical research where can you attract patients through the portal through different ways through patient engagement to be able to get in there because now we want that data to come in seamlessly into the database because they don't have people to hand enter whatever the patient submitted.
3: And if I could just add from a resourcing standpoint, what we've tried to do, and I don't know that we've hit the perfect sweet spot, but to your comment earlier, Neil, the division of resources is challenging or the lack of division of resources is challenging. And so what we've tried to do is organize a little bit more centrally around the folks who truly support research from applications, data, infrastructure, compute, storage, all of that, really under one vertical. So those resources are competing against them. So the community of users for those resources, whether it's grant-funded or otherwise, are competing for that. The, those resources. They're not competing against operationally focused resources. It's not perfect, but it has helped a little bit and has helped to uh, separate that service catalog from the operational focused service catalog.
0: Yeah. By the way, if you have a little time in between me asking you questions, if you want to hit some of these Q&As that are coming in here, I think there's four questions in there if, if you guys want to type some things back by all means do that. I'm going to keep working through the questions we received. In in terms of the data, it's data for clinical research. Has that is that a function that clearly falls under IT to aggregate that data, source that data, clean that data and make that available? And are we looking at different technologies in order to, I think, Neil, you said the word scale, but to do research at scale and to make that sort of a, a common platform for all researchers to hit. Neil, I'll start with you because you're shaking your head.
2: Yeah. No, I think it's an and conversation. Everybody wants all the data together, but now we have to deal with security issues of how do multi-center people get to the data in a safe way and only get to the data that they're entitled to. I mean, you now have the problem of easy access, but now the security issues and all those other issues create a problem of you having to restrict things. And at that tension point, we're still trying to figure it out in that space. Yeah. Michael, how about a
0: pen? What, how do you approach the data, making the data available for researchers?
1: A little bit more of a 80-20 rule. I think we try to address the majority of needs through a standard platform. We happen to call that platform Penomics and it's populated with some level of patient care data, but then all that other data that exists in the research environment, like biobanging biospecimen data and genomic data and other types of things that aren't standard in the patient care world. So we try to create that platform and then allow the researchers, to Neil's point, reach in with security, pull out what they need, and then add their other sources of data, whether it's coming from pumps or surveys or trials or whatever to meet their need. But it's kind of an 80-20 rule there.
0: We'll get back to our show in just a minute. I am excited about our webinars this year. They have been going very well. What I've done is I've gone out and talked to people in the community and said, what works in webinars? And they came back and said, look, this is what we want. We want a webinar." that is not product centric, it's really focused in on the problems of healthcare and we want people on there that are actually solving those problems. And so we have done that and the response has been fantastic this year. We have another webinar coming up. It is the future of care spaces. Where care is being delivered is changing rapidly. Even the care spaces within the hospital themselves are changing, technology is being added and different types of technology, AI, obviously, computer vision and whatnot is changing that modality as well as what's going on in the home and whatnot. So we're going to have that webinar on June 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We usually have it on the first Thursday, happens to be a little too close to my anniversary. So we're going to do June 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, future of care spaces. We would love to have you be a part of it. If you are interested in being there, go ahead and hit our website, top right-hand corner. We have a card, you can click on that card and go ahead and fill out the form and get registered today. We would love to have you join us. We look forward to seeing you there. Now back to our show. I'm gonna modify this question a little bit. The question is given the persisting issues with provider staffing, patient access, and healthcare costs rising across the board, what solutions are you looking at to solve this? On top of that, do you see any solutions in the market that can address all these? I guess the question I would ask around that is, Are you looking for solutions in the marketplace to solve that? Or are you being more, uh, I don't know, more at the ground level, just trying to address workflow issues and the normal lean processes and that kind of stuff? Are you looking for solutions or are you maybe taking a efficiency approach as you look at that? Greg, how about, I'll go with you.
3: Yeah, I guess I'd say it's more the latter for us, Bill. It's maximizing use of existing tools and commitment to simplifying and optimizing. Optimizing scheduling, as we talked about, is critical. Using contemporary tools, uh, you know, are in other areas of the world outside of healthcare. Consolidating and standardizing to single platforms where possible, rather than adding net new bolt-ons and new capabilities, which complicate Our lives, and in some cases, have a carry forward of technical debt, as Neil described earlier. I don't think net new tools and more ways of doing things is the answer. I think simplifying the world for our providers, our staff, and our patients is really the way to achieve some of those economies.
0: Michael, is simplification something you're looking to do as well?
1: Yeah, I share with my team and with similar industry events like this, the three Cs. It's common systems, centrally managed, collaboratively installed. And if you can have that platform in place, leverage the tools you have, work collaboratively with operations. I think the three of us are all on the same EMR platform. We know what tools we have. Those tools continue to evolve. Uh, Adding more to the mix at this point in time isn't going to move us forward.
0: All right. So, let me put you on the spot then. The three of you, I'll ask you this question. <laughs> a, a year from now, will you have more applications than you have today? And Michael, I'll start with you.
1: Going, Our fiscal year begins in July, and we're already beginning that budget process, and I know I will have less applic- applications. It, 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 well, my, uh, a, vendor, a
0: year from July, you will have less than what you start with. My this core July.
1: vendor, core platform will provide that service.
3: Craig? I would lean towards less, but I think it'll probably be close to flat with some, some gives and puts. Are you trying to retire some stuff? Yeah, we have some systems. And we've just gone through a significant m a activity with a hospital in the area. And so we've got some decommissioning that's going to happen there. And then we have some other priorities of bigger implementations, mainly around the ERP that's going to reduce the broader footprint. Yeah. Neil, more or less applications a year from now?
2: Plus, we went live on our EHR platform five years ago. We got rid of 120 applications. Our ERP go live is coming up here in April. That will get rid of over another 100 applications. And given where we are, we need to consolidate onto common footprints, and we're actively working in that direction. Yeah. It's a, it's
0: interesting. It's a, it is definitely, definitely a goal is to reduce the number of applications, get onto more platforms. And, and I think we're hearing that across the board is the, let's see, how are they asking this? Do you feel the CIO plays a role in delivering exceptional customer experience? Is there, are you guys hearing a lot? Are you being asked a lot about the customer experience and improving the customer experience?
2: We'll go in the other direction. Neil, customer experience? Absolutely. And being a clinician, that's how I got into this game uh, was because I yelled about how much IT didn't work and they made me come to community meetings. And uh, I, we lead a group committee called the Patient Engagement Technology Committee that our chief medical officer and I lead specifically because customer experience is everything. And in Nashville, it's a small enough community that you hear about it very quickly from your community in different locations if your customer experience isn't where it needs to be. And so, absolutely, it's totally front of mind. Yeah. So, Craig, I know you guys think a lot about customer
0: experience because you're in that beautiful, and actually Philadelphia would fall in this category too, you're in that beautiful place that has so much competition that the customer experience really really does matter in that LA and Philadelphia, probably every market now, especially the urban centers. But Craig, what are you seeing? What's next in terms of the customer experience? What are they asking
3: for? Yeah, I think it's it's staying ahead or at least keeping up with the sort of entrance in the market and our competition. I think usability, UI, UX, look, feel, all things and really that our customer facing or prospective patient facing uh, they have to be our priority and they are, our pri- they are our priority. We have UCLA just down the road and to our South, a number of organizations and, and, and in every direction. And so that's certainly a priority for us. I think internally, our customers, I think Manila was speaking to, I feel like the chief health, help desk officer many times that really there's, a, and I think it's a good thing. There's no problem too small that I you know, occasionally hear about and it forces us to really look at the way we do things, the way we serve our internal customers, our clinicians, our staff, our caregivers. And that's a critical priority for us. And excellence is a foundation of that. The,
0: Michael, I'll change the question, come to you just slightly, which is, are you utilizing, I mean, we talked about getting onto common platforms that kind of stuff. Are you just use, utilizing the tools that your vendors are providing to establish that customer experience? Or are you starting to branch out and create experiences, say with some of your COBOL programmers over there?
1: I wish I had more COBOL programmers. They're good, to, good guys, good ladies. We're branching out. So I think our platform has a lot of functionality and we all use terms like low friction and engagement with our patients. But leveraging some of the tools, whether it's a a texting solution to augment our scheduling system is one example. I think a broader example is, and you mentioned the Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Nashville, their urban centers, they're hard to get to. And three of our major hospitals are downtown and it's frustrating. And so that experience already has two strikes against it because they had to sit in traffic, They had to find parking, they had to find their way to one of our buildings. And now how do we make it better from there? So you're always trying to reclaim that in-person experience. So more tele type of experience adds to the the benefit and and pushing more to the home is certainly a big initiative for us because that'll do two things. One is it's generally where people wanna be served from a care perspective if they can. Secondly, it'll reduce the census population that we're all dealing with and provide the opportunity to get truly those sicker patients into the hospital, so to reduce that stress level also.
0: There's about five questions here. <laughs> Do you think Q&A is, I'm sorry, sorry, Q&A. Do you think m is going to increase? There's a question around prioritizing partnerships with, with players as you increase your reach. There's a question about how do AMCs determine which community hospitals to work, partner with, and I guess somebody just mentioned this, I, Craig, I think you just mentioned this, so you guys are doing some of this work. Is there, a, you can't really speak about M&A, but talk about partnerships, talk about community partnerships that are going on and how you're expanding your reach and your and your influence in that LA market.
3: Yeah. And so we we look from a strategic standpoint at who would be a good partner based on the geography, the patient populace, where we don't already have existing services or reach. And those are markets that we move into. Certainly more complicated than that when you get down to the nuts and bolts and some of the behind the scenes sausage making, but that's the general theme. We're looking to broaden our reach to better serve the communities around us. I think from a technology standpoint, we try to partner with our uh, potential affiliations early to really understand where they're at and what their needs might be. And we see how we can further support any future integration needs prospectively. And then once we join, we do everything we can to assimilate and support each other so that together we're stronger. It's complicated, for sure, but it, it has lots of opportunities and lots of potential, certainly in the application rationalization space. Yeah, I mean,
2: only
0: because I was in your market. I know. So you have Torrance Memorial, you have Huntington, and you even that's have something range. you have something with Providence too.
3: We do. We have a roughly 50-50, 49-51 50, ownership model with Providence Tarzana over in the Valley. And so there, it's primarily Providence Tech that's in that space, but we have partnered on a number of things, including some imaging capabilities across our orgs.
0: So Neil, I'll come to you next. Any like, How do you partner? How do you reach the broader community around Nashville?
2: So around Nashville, up, I can say in terms of past M&A, we've acquired three community hospitals in the past four years. And that was, those were the first hospital acquisitions that Vanderbilt had ever done. And we brought them all onto our same instance of our EHR and standardize them on the VMC platform end-to-end mainly so that the provider experience and the patient experience is seamless so that if they go anywhere in the system it's uh, seamless so what we're trying to do is we know and just like Michael said nobody wants to come to downtown Nashville <laughs> they want they want they'll come here for their surgery yeah. but they'll come here for a hyper specialist but everything else they want local And so what we need to figure out is either having the community presence there, whether it's a big box ASC or a community hospital that wants to be within the Vanderbilt system, but we also then have affiliates that we try to partner with where we do an extensive share of best practices, ideas, and coordination of transfer of patients appropriately. Because for Vanderbilt, we don't make money If we bring in low CMI patients, which is the case mix index, which are less complex patients, because our cost of care in the downtown campus is just too high. And so we do better with the complex patients and allow the less complex to be well cared for in their local settings. So unlike in the past when volume was everything, now I think it's the right type of volume being in the right place. And Great. that's how we partner with affiliates and increase our presence away from the central hub.
0: Yeah, I'd rather drive to downtown Nashville than go down the Schuylkill Expressway. Michael, <laughs> uh, if you guys <laughs> have ever Everybody. been on that, it is I don't think it's ever wide open. But Michael, what about you? I mean, you guys are predominantly downtown, but I mean you have huge communities all around you, including into New Jersey.
1: And we do have three community hospitals that service the region and I do believe there's only two independent hospitals left. So I'm not sure that there are opportunities for us, but I'd put a little different spin on this and get the group's feedback and ask the participants to think about it also is if you look at health in general, it's always three components. It's pharma, it's payers slash insurers, and it's providers. Providers are struggling at this point. Pharma and payers have all the money and I see more and more relationships and partnerships, at least for us, with at least the payers and trying to find that synergy around more value-based care, uh, more targeted care, more arrangements in that respect. So I'm not sure there's an acquisition, certainly not an acquisition of an academic medical center of a payer, but I do wonder if there's going to be more payers acquiring the providers in order to link that care together. And I don't think I see any pharma doing anything other than what they do best.
0: What they do best. I'm gonna, I don't know if this is softball or not. It feels like a softball. I wanna talk to you about work from home and your staff and whatnot. Is that changing at all? I read a Wall Street Journal article this week. In fact, I think it was Monday. And they said that the number of remote jobs is actually going down and they were citing The number of jobs on LinkedIn, number of jobs on indeed and whatnot, fewer of them are saying, Hey, work from anywhere and that kind of stuff, healthcare tends to be slow to adopt these things. And we have workers working from home now, and we've definitely adopted that and we'll probably be slow to come back from that. But is there any intention, has the nature of work changed? Is there any intention to come back from that? What does it look like? Does someone want to volunteer to start this one off? I don't want to put anybody on the
3: spot. I can try. That's a, it's an interesting question that. Oh, you have. know what?
0: You should try. I have had to drive to Cedar <laughs> Sinai. That could be the <laughs> hardest place to get to in history.
3: Correct. Uh, 10 miles can take you an hour and a half for sure. It, I think for us, I don't foresee it changing in the near or intermediate term. Um, it's been a win for us for the reason you stated, Bill, and our ability to recruit outside of our even our drivable area, the drivable, however you wish to define that. And so we've got folks working in other states, which has been great to get high-quality talent that can do the work that needs to happen, whether they're on-site or remote. That's reserved for specific roles, and I think we'll need to continue that. I think where we haven't quite settled out yet is really in the hybrid roles, roles that are local, nearby, that are drivable, that occasionally need to be on site and occasionally or more than more often than not are working from home right now. I think that'll primarily be driven for us by the way the organization shifts. We're still really not doing in-person meetings or not doing in-person meetings beyond. I think the latest guidance was 50% capacity in the rooms. And so a lot of that really is just driving the way we interact with our customer base. So biggest positive, I'm going to go
0: to the other, Neil, I'm going to go to you and Michael, I'm going to come to you. Biggest positive of remote work and the thing we miss most because of remote work.
2: Neil, I'll go to you. The biggest positive is I don't have to get up at six in the morning for a 7 a.m. meeting where I have to have my butt in the chair in the middle of campus. But And that's awesome, as well as late meetings. The biggest negative, I'm in my office. I like the change in context. There's hardly anybody else here and it's lonely.
0: Yeah. Isolation is one of the things I've heard from people is not all employees like being in their home. Some actually do like interaction with other people. So I guess they can go to coffee shops. Michael?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest positive has been resulting in our maintaining our high retention level of our employees and to Craig's point, being able to recruit from outside the region. It's been really strong for us. We have a solid plan To continue to be a remote organization, we've begun to shut down some of our leased and rental spaces that housed IT staff before. So we're sending all the messages, we're performing all the actions that indicate we're going to stay in a remote type of environment. But I do believe over time, some employees, to your point about loneliness and isolation, have begun to filter back And each day, I see more and more folks in the office, not that we're exceeding more than 15% of our staff each day, unless there's a get-together reason, but I have seen people voluntarily begun to come back to the office because they miss their colleagues, they want to have team meetings, they want to meet face-to-face. I think the biggest downside to all of this is less happy hours. I miss them.
0: (laughs) Here's an interesting one for you guys. And I was with a AMCIO a week and a half ago, and we were talking about this because he was the CIO of the university and the CIO of the, of the health system and medical center. And somebody asked the question here, do you think you'll see some of that consolidation come across there? I'll just ask one of you to answer that question. I think the person I was with would say they're two very different jobs, but I'm curious what you guys think.
1: Yeah, I would just tend to agree. They're very, our priorities are patient care, research. Their priorities are registration, class attendance, those types of things. And there are some platforms that maybe there's a ERP that might overlap and be an umbrella, but (laughs) I meet regularly with the CIO of the university and we're talking two different languages often.
0: Uh, it, and that is one of the things he said he goes a university meeting is very different than a health system meeting i mean it's just in its context and its urgency and it's an approach it's just a very different approach and i'm just pulling this one out this is mine public health emergency coming to an end in may i think is what we're, what's being signaled and that's part of what the biden administration said coming in that they would give us 60 to 90 days notice before they ended the public health emergency so i think it will probably come to an end in may does that change anything with regard i mean the telehealth will continue because that was part of the omnibus bill i'm trying to think what other things really but how will that impact do you have an idea of how the end of the public health emergency is going to impact you michael i guess i'll start with you or unless you're hoping i've on somebody else
1: no i think the biggest topic, we've seen the number of patients that might be left without any type of insurance right. at this point. And so they'll have no coverage. And then how are we going to address that? And do we go back to some state-sponsored plan, federally-sponsored plan? But other than that, maybe Neil or Craig have more insights, but I th- that is a concern of ours. And particularly in urban areas, that is a concern.
0: Yeah. I know. I just remember... I'll speak about our health system. We lost money on Medicaid. We tried to break even on Medicare and we made money on commercial. Right. And Now we're losing money across the board having more people show up. And by the way, there's a ton of care that was just given away because we had had, Southern California, we had a ton of people who were undocumented and didn't give us social security numbers and they received a lot of free care and whatnot. So there's a lot of free care that gets given out every year. And that's okay when you're making... Numbers, but if you are not making numbers, that even exacerbates the problem more. So, yeah, I, I can understand. And they did talk about that in the in the release. They expected an increase of twenty to thirty thousand people added to the Medicaid rules moving forward. Uh, so, I,
2: I would add to that, Bill. The issue is not just the yes. All of us in AMC's provide um, uncompensated care, right? A lot of us, it's part of our mission in many ways in the local region. The greater difficulty lately we found is that even the payers we have contract with are delaying, and we had this with Medicare Advantage programs where we were supposed to get paid and we're still not getting paid. And so it's just the friction overall in every direction, I think, is what's creating. Let me ask a question a little
0: differently. Public health emergency comes to an end. Yes, the omnibus bill is going to continue the telehealth has telehealth become ingrained enough that it is just part of the structure of how you deliver care moving forward? Craig, how about in LA? Is it just it's just already baked in now and you feel like pretty confident
3: it'll continue? I think so. I think we've started to hit a post-pandemic equilibrium of sorts, There there's specialties and and not that have self-selected or their patients have self-selected what that what that baseline will be. I think we see our telehealth numbers range from next to nothing to in the 20s in terms of a percentage of total visit volume skewed more heavily towards primary care with the higher numbers. We also have made available a more real-time video visits now capability, which has helped decant some capacity and access issues away from urgent care and the ED, which has been great. But I think it's here to stay, and I'm not sure What would need to happen in terms of payments and changes in the regs that would shift that pretty dramatically?
0: Yeah. I have a feeling what we're going to see is that the federal government's going to, they have a ton of data now. They're going to be able to look at it and say, Hey, this worked, this didn't work, this did work. And they'll hopefully adjust the funding to match what actually increases access and improves outcomes. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for your time. And I want to thank you for participating in this. The, uh, let's see, I want to thank everybody who who came onto the call. It was a great turnout as and all the questions that you gave. Really appreciate Gentlemen, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time.
1: Great. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here.
0: Thanks. I love the chance to have these conversations. I think if I were a CIO today, I would have every team member listen to a show like this one. I believe it's conference level value every week. If you want to support This Week Health, tell someone about our channels. That would really benefit us. We have a mission of getting our content into as many hands as possible. And if you're listening to it, hopefully you find value. And if you could tell somebody else about it, it helps us to achieve our mission. We have two channels. We have the conference channel, which you're listening to, and This Week Health Newsroom. Check them out today. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, you get the picture. We are everywhere. We want to thank our keynote partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix who invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.